Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Good leaders are important no matter the institution. But what happens when those in power take advantage of the people they're supposed to be leading or turn a blind eye to misconduct levied against others? Coming up, we're going to hear from a psychologist about why some institutions struggle with doing the right thing. Our discussion is pegged to the horrific abuse scandal that has scarred Catholic communities across the state of Pennsylvania. Last week, a grand jury found more than 1,000 children had been abused by more than 300 Roman Catholic priests in Pennsylvania. That abuse happened across several decades. And some of the people appointed to lead these church communities, some of the bishops and archbishops themselves, have been accused of being complicit in covering up the abuse. Now, this is not the first time these cases have turned up. Connecticut had its share of lawsuits and allegations against Roman Catholic priests in the Archdiocese of Hartford and the Diocese of Bridgeport. Coming up, we're going to hear about reforms that have taken place locally. Is it enough to win back the trust of Connecticut parishioners? We want to hear from you, whether you're a practicing Catholic or have left the church. The number 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We also wanted to hear from the support network for survivors of sexual abuse by priests. What changes do they want to see happen? That's coming up. Now, for more context surrounding the cases here in Connecticut, I want to welcome to the show on the phone with us Cindy Robinson, partner at Tremont Sheldon Robinson Mahoney Law, for- Law Firm rather in Bridgeport, Connecticut. For the last 25 years, Cindy has represented many clergy child sex abuse survivors. Cindy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, we know that uh, many of us here in the United States really became aware of this uh, sexual abuse happening to children within the Roman Catholic Church uh, back in 2002 when the Boston Globe's investigation uh, came out about widespread abuse in the archdiocese there. This has been going on much longer uh, than much previous to 2002. Talk about how your firm got involved with representing, uh, again, survivors of sex- sexual abuse in the Bridgeport Diocese and what the reaction when those first cases were coming out. Sure. My firm's involvement in representing adults who had been sexually abused as children by their parish priest really began over two decades ago in 1993 at a time when this topic was not at all popular to discuss in public. And over those early years, we filed dozens of lawsuits for people who were victimized by clergy members in area dioceses, specifically the Diocese of Bridgeport. And in the early days of bringing those lawsuits, our firm did receive some backlash because we chose to sue the church. Thankfully, media coverage on those cases helped educate the public on what was going on and resulted in many victims having a voice in their fight to hold the church accountable. But it began an eight-year odyssey of litigating two dozen cases, opposing motions for protective order and motions to seal, was sought to prevent us from disseminating information and documentation that we obtained. Our clients endured lengthy and emotional depositions. Oftentimes, their parents and siblings also were forced to be deposed. And in the process, they felt 
re-victimized. But slowly, as a result of the media coverage in this state, and obviously what you had just spoken about, Lucy, the Boston Globe in 2002, there was a shift in public opinion. And as a result, more victims found the strength to come out and be heard, and the tide slowly changed, and people became more supportive of victims in bringing these claims. Can you walk us through um, some of, uh, I know there have been settlements reached uh, with uh, uh, a lot of these lawsuits, but when we talk about the victims, who were they? The victims were um, everyone, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, they were everyone. They were people from all um, parts of society, um, the wealthier parts of society, the poorer parts of society, um, but they all had something in common. They all came from families that were very entrenched and very involved and loved the Catholic Church. And that was probably the worst part of all of this when you speak of child sex abuse. It's the fact that the child is being abused by the person in ultimate position of trust. And that's probably the worst part of my mind for our clients, um, is that they oftentimes, almost always blame themselves because they cannot comprehend how a priest, a person in the ultimate position of trust, who is so revered by all, could do such horrible things. So instead, they blame themselves. And that is devastating to their psyche, their self-worth, their self-esteem, and really many never get over it. Uh, you mentioned the backlash earlier, Cindy, uh, that um, that victims who had come forward uh, here in Connecticut uh, received. Uh, we even saw in the public eye, we all remember Sinead O'Connor when she ripped up that picture of the Pope and she was pretty much vilified for doing it. Uh, again, she was speaking out against the abuse that was happening uh, within the church in Ireland. And uh, fast forward uh, 25 years, we're seeing that come to light in Ireland, in Chile. Um, what was your reaction when you you read and saw the details from that Pennsylvania grand jury report that this is still coming to light and that um, there, a lot of these people that have victimized children, uh, they haven't gotten punished. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I was, as much as I was sickened, sickened by the grand jury report, I wasn't surprised by the grand jury report because a lot of what I read in parts of that report, unfortunately, found, um, sounded all too familiar to what we had experienced during the decades that we've had these cases. Interestingly, the grand jury report talks of a circle of secrecy, and that is the reason why these um, crimes have been per perpetuated for so many years, because there is a circle of secrecy in the way that... Um, um, the church has handled these cases. It's almost like a playbook for handling sex abuse claims against children. You know, the use of euphemisms. Um, it's not described as rape. Instead, it's described as inappropriate conduct or boundary issues. It's not described as fondling. It's described as tickling. Um, use of codes when priests are sent away because they are accused of sex abuse. They will say reason for health issues, and that's really because they've been accused of child abuse. Um, routinely, priests being removed from service until a loss, uh, not until a lawsuit is filed. So um, they're allowed to serve until a lawsuit is filed. And that's what we found with our cases, that many times, even though there was knowledge that a, a priest was abusive, they were not removed from service until a lawsuit was filed. Um, and we had a deposition testimony from a former bishop testifying that priests accused of misconduct with children would be sent for counseling and then sent to another parish so that the priest could have a fresh start without even telling the new assignment that this priest was a pedophile. So unfortunately, what I saw in this grand jury report is um, historically repetitive of the things that we saw in a lot of the cases that we had over the last 25 years. Uh, you're an attorney. In Pennsylvania, there's discussion now about uh, expanding the statutes of limitations. Um, can you tell us what currently is on uh, the books here in Connecticut when we're talking about people who've been uh, 
who have been abused uh, sexually as children, and they're coming forward years later. Are there any protections for them? Right. So in Connecticut, um, victims, adult victims, have until their 48th birthday in which to bring a claim. But we routinely speak with people in their 50s and 60s who are just coming to terms with these, these events. And I think that one of the most important things that can be done to right these wrongs is really to eliminate the civil statute of limitations for child sex abuse for future claims. And as suggested by the grand jury report, to offer a civil window allowing victims already past the statute to file claims. Of course, the church, the diocese, could voluntarily agree to accept these claims and allow victims to file suit regardless of the statute of limitations. And I really think that's what needs to be done. You know, child abuse has rightfully been called murder of the soul. It's a crime against society. And we as a community have to do everything in our power to make sure it doesn't happen. And we have to afford the many, many victims of these crimes a chance to redress these wrongs through the legal system. So just to recap, in Connecticut, um, you can uh, file, uh, come forward about uh, allegations of being abused up until the age of 48? Civil claims. You can make a civil claim for sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, and sexual assault until your 48th birthday. Uh, The reason I I wanted to double check on that, I heard a report on NPR's Morning Edition that the average age of someone who comes forward about abuse, they're 52. That doesn't surprise me. We, As I said, we get calls oftentimes from people that are over their 48th birthday, and that's, I guess, the devastating part. That's how long it takes for people to come to terms with what happened to them. They live, you know, painfully in silence with these things, blaming themselves, and the publicity, as we're seeing, is really good and important, and I think that's one of the other things that the um, grand jury report focused on, that they hope it will help people speak out. There's no way that a person can recover from this if they are to recover without speaking out about it. Uh, Cindy Robinson's on the phone with us, partner at Tremont Sheldon Robinson Mahoney Law Firm in Bridgeport, Connecticut. For the past 25 years, she's represented uh, many uh, people who've been uh, victimized or who survivors uh, from clergy child sex abuse. We have a survivor in studio with us. I want to welcome onto the show now uh, Gail Howard. She's co-leader of the Connecticut chapter of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, also known as SNAP. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I wanted to give out the number as well to our listeners, again, uh, 860-275-7266. As we talk about uh, what's um, been happening within the Roman Catholic Church, many of us are raised as Catholics, many of us uh, who have left uh, the church, or those of us who've decided to stay, we want to hear from you about your reaction to and to hear about the changes you want to see happen within the church. Uh, Gail, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you Mm -hmm. grew up, and Mm -hmm. uh, what happened to you. Okay. Uh, Well, I grew up in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, which is part of the Archdiocese of Chicago, and uh, I was abused by my pastor, who was a Monsignor, um, highly regarded, uh, considered a very learned man. Um, So, uh, of course, it would have been uh, hopeless uh, to come forward, but I never would have tried because I did believe um, it was my fault. Uh, when you were uh, uh, attacked by mm-hmm. this man, um, you were 17. That's right. So when it happened, did you feel at that time there was nobody that you could tell, not even your parents? Um, that's right. Uh, it's. I felt that it was a terrible secret that I had to uh, keep to myself. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic, uh, so... Um, We were kind of an easy mark. Uh, We were very involved with the church, relied on the church 
uh, for support, emotional and spiritual, uh, and for the head of the parish uh, to suddenly uh, behave like an animal, a monster, uh, toward me, um, simply told me that I was uh, marked, uh, that I must have done something. Uh, There's something fundamentally wrong with me uh, in order for this to happen. And I absolutely uh, kept it to myself. When were you able to uh, be open about what happened to you? And I'm just curious, now that you run a support group uh, for other survivors, uh, many of you have the same experiences of of first uh, blaming yourselves, but when was the Mm -hmm. moment that you were able to come forward? Well, it was a series of steps. Uh, When the Boston uh, reports came out in 2002, uh, I literally didn't know that anyone else in the world had ever been abused. So my I read it in the newspaper, and uh, the, my first reaction was rage. Uh, I mean, I'm not the only one. Uh, and as soon as you know you're not the only one, you start to question whether it was your fault. So uh, I then uh, spoke openly to uh, a chapter meeting of Voice of the Faithful, which is a group Uh, of people who've remained in the church but who want reforms. Uh, And they kindly uh, heard my story. Uh, And from there, uh, I met with church officials in Chicago, and they said that they accepted my account, uh, but they were not going to publicize uh, my attacker's name because he was dead and couldn't defend himself. Uh, And while uh, there was some satisfaction in making that report, uh, I began to wonder, you know, what uh, he was getting off uh, scot-free. So um, I worked with SNAP, and in 2014, uh, they helped me hold a press conference in front of the chancery in Chicago, um, and I told my story. And it was there that I finally felt uh, liberated. Uh, So uh, I became involved with SNAP uh, in about 2004 when the uh, chapter was founded in Connecticut. And uh, once I retired from my uh, full-time work, uh, I stepped forward and uh, and began leading uh, the chapter. And we now hold uh, meetings once a month. Uh, You can come in person or you can participate via conference call. So anyone in the state of Connecticut or who was abusing Connecticut and now lives someone else is welcome uh, to join uh, that support group. Uh, when the news came out about uh, the grand jury report in Pennsylvania, and every time there are reports of this happening uh, within church communities, not in not only in this country but in, in other countries, you know, how does that make you feel as a survivor? Mm-hmm. And we've, we're going to hear about some reforms that are taking place in the Bridgeport Diocese. Again, uh, they were sued uh, back uh, in the 90s. Um, but you know, what do you want to see change? Do you think change is possible? Um, I'm going to say something very uh, drastic. I think the hierarchy of the church uh, needs to step aside. And uh, the uh, parishioners and the priests who have not hurt anyone uh, should uh, reform 
the church uh, in the image of Christ. This is where we live. Uh, Gail Howard is in studio with us, co-leader of the Connecticut chapter of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests or SNAP. Also on the phone with us, Cindy Robinson. Uh, She's a partner at Tremont Sheldon Robinson Mahoney Law Firm in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And she has uh, represented uh, the survivors of clergy child sex abuse. And we wanted to take your calls as well this hour. The number 860-275-7266. Pat's, oh, let me try this again. Pat's calling from New Britain. Pat, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you? I'm doing okay. Tell us uh, your comment or question, Pat. Well, I've got a couple of points, and I'll try to make them brief so that it doesn't go on and on and on. Uh, there's a couple of issues. One of the, one question is, well, well, in in view of all of this tragic news that you know reoccurs and reoccurs, comes out and comes out. I'm glad it's it's getting uncovered. Um, but one of the problems that we have as human beings is that we have a need to idolize our leaders, whether they're civil or religious whether you're idolizing uh, Donald Trump or, or, you know, your parish, uh, your parish priest who you think your family thinks is a thing. We're human beings. We are human beings, and we put ourselves in a position like that. And for many, many years, the, uh, I, I don't think the Catholic Church was exclusive to this, but, you know, thou shalt not touch those leaders. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you would, you know, hell would, would, would come down on the family. Um, the other thing is that I'm... I'm I, I, from a young child, I've always believed that you, that you know, in the Bible it says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar." These people have violated, you know, the law, and they need to come to justice. As simple as that. Justice. Turn it over. Let let them investigate. You know, you see, there's a there's a series about the keepers or something like that on Netflix that reveals all this hoopla of church leaders and civil leaders involved in the and the abuse of young girls in, in a high school, and it was all throughout the parish, from government to the priest, but it was all attached to a priest. And then the third is, it just hits home to me in particular because an aunt, uncle of mine who passed away a uh, few years ago at the age of 75 was a victim of sexual abuse. Well, he, his faith was in from, he, he had a tremendous dislike for the priest. He, he would never you know, warm up to them, you know, he was respectful, but, you know, he would never get close, you know, he he would just uh, be very cordial, you know, he would listen to, like, the words, but, uh, but this affected him tremendously, tremendously. Well, Pat, thank you for your call, and I'm sorry to hear about what happened uh, to your uncle. Um, Again, this is where we live today. We're just reflecting on, again, another case, a very troubling report out of Pennsylvania about uh, the the numerous uh, incidents of child sex abuse that have happened uh, by the hands of Roman Catholic priests there. We wanted to uh, take this hour to to reflect on this uh, for our listeners, uh, many of them who were raised in the Catholic Church, some who are still uh, practicing Catholics. We have a survivor in studio, Gail Howard, co-leader of the Connecticut Chapter of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. We're going to have to go to break soon, Gail, but for those people who, when they see these accounts, it brings up uh, memories that they have tried to bury or they're looking to uh, for a way uh, to find support, where, how do they uh, reach you or SNAP? Okay. Uh, there are a couple of ways. Uh, you can go to the uh, main website for SNAP, uh, and that's snapnetwork.org. Uh, slash Connecticut. Uh, Or you can call me directly uh, on my cell phone, 203-644-0387. 
And we'll share that those informa- that information on our website, also our social media. I want to take time to thank Cindy Robinson, partner at Tremont Sheldon Robinson Mahoney Law Firm in Bridgeport. Cindy, thank you for giving us some perspective on uh, the cases here in the state of Connecticut. Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, from the millions paid in settlements to resolve lawsuits filed by victims of sexual abuse to the declining number of parishioners, what is the future for the Roman Catholic Church, and what do they have in common with communities across the nation and in our, around the globe? We're also going to hear about the reforms that have taken place locally in the Bridgeport Diocese. This note, we did invite the Archdiocese of Hartford onto the show. They declined uh, in a video message obtained by where we live. Archbishop Leonard Blair delivered a four-minute message to active priests in the diocese. Here's a little bit of that message to them. Like you, I feel the shame and spiritual dejection, as well as anger, at what has happened to victims and to all the faithful as a result of sexual abuse and depredation and the failure of some bishops to definitively remove clerical predators. At the same time, I want to acknowledge publicly the moral integrity and dedicated ministry of the overwhelming majority of priests, including the priests of our archdiocese, past and present. Again, that's part of the message Archbishop Blair delivered to active priests in the diocese. Uh, they declined to come on today's show. We are going to hear from a representative from the Bridgeport Diocese about reforms that are taking place. And we want to welcome you to join the conversation, too. The number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about how the Roman Catholic Church has responded to sexual abuse of children by some priests and laity or non-clergy members of the church. Now, this has been a problem in the Catholic Church here in the U.S. and in other countries like Ireland and Chile. How does the church move forward and win back the trust of its parishioners? In a statement to National Catholic reporter Boston Cardinal Sean O'Malley said, something must be done right away. Quote, the clock is ticking for all of us in church leadership. Catholics have lost patience with us, and civil society has lost confidence in us. This is, again, uh, Cardinal O'Malley in a statement. He goes on to say, I am not without hope and do not succumb to despondent acceptance that our failures cannot be corrected. What do you think about that statement? Are you a practicing Catholic? What changes have you seen or would like to see in your parish or diocese? You can join in on the conversation, the number 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to take a, a call from a listener. Tony's calling from New Haven. Tony, go ahead. Uh, yes, hi. Um, so anyway, when I was a teenager in the 80s, um, I was hit on by a priest. I'm not sure if that's sexual assault or anything, um, but, you know, this is a person that, this priest is a person that I kind of depended on and had a trust with uh, because I came from a very bad family situation with a lot of abuse. And, um, you know, I remember when I was 15, he hit on me one day, and I brushed it off all these years, um, but he soon left my parish right after that. Um, And... I later found out as an adult throughout the years that he had been um, sent oh. to parish, finally ending up at mine before they sent him off to St. Thomas Seminary um, and would not allow him around children any longer. Um, so I, I 
since left the church years ago because I did come out as gay, and I couldn't stand the fact that the Catholic Church um, condemned gay people, but they still allowed this molestation to happen in their church. Well, Tony, thank you uh, for your comments. I want to bring into our conversation now Dr. Paul Lakeland, professor of Catholic studies and director of the Center for Catholic Studies at Fairfield University. He's also president of the Catholic Theological Society of America. Uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Um, you've uh, heard uh, the, the caller, Tony, uh, sharing an anecdote about what happened to him and how uh, somebody that, uh, uh, a priest that w- that had uh, 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 inappropriate behavior and um, was then later transferred and, and nothing really happened to him. Tony went on to leave the church. This is something that uh, many people hear time and time again. Uh, what is your reaction to why there is still widespread sexual abuse uh, within the church? Well, uh, I'd, I'd go back to something that Gail said a few minutes ago when she sort of rather tentatively suggested that the hierarchy should step aside. Here's the the overall problem seems to be when we're, when we're looking at something as widespread and problematic and painful and horrible and disgusting as this, that we should be very careful in any organization, including the church, not to set out to police ourselves. So if we're looking at the issue of clerical sexual abuse, we, the, the church, including the pope in his letter to the church yesterday, most people are disgusted and horrified, and most people see that it's necessary to tighten up on uh, structures that identify the perpetrators and that bring them to justice. And for the very first time uh, yesterday, the Pope really linked this disease in the church to something called clericalism, which is the, a word for the impact of uh, the, the sort of the old boys club of a closed society of people who happen in this case to be the Catholic clergy, which explains, which does not explain the abuse so much as it explains the way in which the abuse has been played down, hidden, priests have been moved to other dioceses or out of the, uh, to other parishes and so on, uh, in some sort of totally misguided uh, notion that this will protect the reputation of the church and protect the reputation of the individual perpetrator without paying any attention to the condition of the poor abused individual themselves. So if we're talking about uh, how we address this, we have to address clericalism. And honestly, Clericalism cannot really be addressed by clergy because they're, they're inside the system that is the problem. So when Gail said, you know, step aside, let the parishioners take over, it seems to me that one of the first things that the Pope will need to do if he pursues his thought that clericalism is the problem is be very clear to everyone, including Rome itself, that the issue of sexual abuse in the church needs to be dealt with on two levels. First, it needs to be dealt with by lay oversight of abuse, which is certainly happening uh, to some degree in the Diocese of Bridgeport, which I think you'll hear about later. Um, And and secondly, that the, the whole issue of clerical culture needs to be addressed. How do you break down clericalism? And many people believe that one of the ways you do that is you take a very, very strong look at the structures of ministry. So, for example, 
many people think that mandatory celibacy is a contributory factor to the problem. Not so much because celibacy is a problem, but because mandatory celibacy is the glue of this culture, which creates this insider group, which is if going back into the past, is um, was the the cause of the sort of the mentality of father knows best. We don't we don't challenge father. That's kind of gone away a bit today, although bits of it are still around. But uh, there just is this need to take a long, hard look at the question: is the, is the climate of abuse an endemic problem in a clericalist culture? Um, also, when we look at um, who the bishops are answerable to, it's just to the Pope. Is that right? Individual bishops are answerable directly to the Pope, correct. They don't answer to it. There is no other structure. It's not like the bishop reports to the archbishop and the archbishop reports to the cardinal. No, each bishop is... is, is the boss in his own diocese, so to speak, and he reports directly to the Pope. When you talk about this change in hierarchy, Paul, um, how how would that move forward in uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, from the Vatican on down? If that were to be something they were open to, would that uh, ne- you know cause a need to change uh, canon law? I mean, I'm just curious what well, kind you know, of canon um, law would <laughs> probably be changed in some respects. Okay. But there are some steps that could be taken relatively quickly that will begin to have. Uh, begin to indicate that the church is not just saying how sorry they are, which I think they genuinely are, but taking steps to make changes. So, for example, Pope Francis has given many hints that he is open to uh, to ab- abandoning the, pro- the, the, the requirement of mandatory celibacy for the clergy and the admission of married men into the clergy. Now, that, we'll, that we won't talk about women right now. Married men into the clergy. That's not going to change everything overnight, but it is going to begin to break down that glue of clericalism that lies in a celibate, enclosed celibate body of people who protect one another. So that's one of the things that could happen uh, right away. Um, the Pope certainly could encourage and do more than encourage the establishment of the, of the principle that when we're talking in a parish or a diocese or even the universal church, when we're addressing the problem of clerical sexual abuse, this, this issue and any investigations that occur ought to be led by suitably qualified lay people. Dr. Paul Lakeland is professor of Catholic studies and director of the Center for Catholic Studies at Fairfield University, also president of the Catholic Theological Society of America. He's joining us uh, on the phone today here on Where We Live. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266. Peter is calling. Uh, Peter, go ahead. Hi. uh, I went to St. Thomas Seminary as a high school student. I spent three years there and then realized that I really wanted to uh, have a family later in life that I left. Um, I was later on when I was in college actually hit on by a parish priest. I came home uh, at Christmas, and uh, I've thought about this many times. I think that one of the major problems that we have in the Catholic Church, and I'm still a very strong practicing Catholic, uh, is that we do not treat women with respect in the Catholic Church. They're not considered equal. The celibacy rule, I think, is a major mistake. I think one of the major reforms that the Protestant churches made 
was they allowed priests to marry. Uh, in the medieval church, there was a reason why priests didn't marry, and that is that the church controlled so much land and so much wealth that they didn't want there to be any doubt that it was the church's land and wealth and could not be passed on to children. So most of the priests had uh, mistresses rather than wives, and therefore had illegitimate children rather than, uh, rather than legitimate children, so they didn't have to uh, worry about that. Um, I have a friend who is a Greek Orthodox, and he tells me that in their tradition, a priest makes a decision as a young priest whether they wish to have a family or not. If they choose to have a family, they can still be a priest, but they can never become a bishop. They must be celibate to become a bishop. Um, so you have to decide early on in your career whether you wish to be a family man and part of the community or whether you wish to be a politician and hope to rise up through the community. So I think that the whole idea of celibacy and the way we treat women and the fact that women can't be priests um, is a one of the key factors uh, that leads to the problem in the Church. And one of the other things that I find interesting in this show is that the woman who's in charge of the group here in Connecticut is a woman, and I uh, respect that, and I know that women have been abused just as men have, but I think probably we could all agree that the high, much higher percentage was men being abused by Catholic priests. Um, I think just the fact that they're living that uh, strange celibate life, mm -hmm. whether they hit on boys or hit on girls, um, it's part of that strange life that they lead in a society that actually is more family-oriented. Well, Peter, thank, thank you. you for your comments. I appreciate it. I'll let uh, Gail Howard mm -hmm. in studio with us, co-leader of the Connecticut Chapter of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests or Snap. Did you want to respond to some of the sentiments that Peter uh, conveyed? Well, uh, I thank Peter for uh, coming forward uh, with his story. Uh, I'm sure it was a very unsettling experience. <clears throat> but I can't agree uh, with Peter on the question of uh, celibacy being at the root uh, of the problem. Uh, SNAP serves uh, a number of denominations, uh, the Mennonites, uh, Anglican Church, uh, and several others uh, where abuse has taken place uh, where the minister or priest uh, is married. And uh, I don't think it's a hunger for sex uh, that drives abuse, it's a uh, hunger for power. Um, and to uh, destroy uh, a child, um, that's, that's a big uh, burst of power, unfortunately. It's a, a very twisted uh, kind of satisfaction, um, but I think it goes beyond the question of celibacy. This is Where We Live. Again, you can join us, uh, join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the discussion now Erin Neal. She's founding director of Safe Environments for the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, we've been talking about uh, just reaction uh, to uh, this other, uh, just another uh, in a long line of abuse scandals, uh, the, mo the latest being in Pennsylvania, detailed in this uh, horrific grand jury report released last week. Um, Bridgeport, again, uh, was sued uh, back in the 90s. Uh, there was a settlement uh, in the early 2000s. Aaron, you're part of uh, the reforms that have uh, taken place. Tell us about the process that's down there now. Sure. Thank you, Lucy, for having me on the show. And um, also, Gail, just thank you for your courage in bringing awareness to this issue. Um, right. In, yeah. in the Diocese of Bridgeport, um, we have a child abuse prevention program, and it's called Virtus. Um, it is a program that educates adults, and we have a program for children so that children understand how to look for the warning signs in sexual abuse. 
Um, we start our training at kindergarten, and we go all the way through high school, and we continue on uh, with education for adults. And, and part of the training includes uh, some videos and actual testimony um, from survivors of sexual abuse. And in addition to the awareness training, we also have a committee for healing. And the Committee for Healing is it consists of a group of survivors, and they work together with our bishop to bring all sorts of different events and opportunities and a massive hope and healing so that we can bring others together to talk about this problem. And they're critical in helping to bring the prevention piece, too. I mean, they really are at the forefront of our prevention efforts. Uh, the the training that children are receiving, that's something that uh, many of us didn't get in CCD uh, growing up. Mm-hmm. So that's good to hear that that's, uh, being, that's happening starting at the kindergarten level. But Aaron, I wanted to ask you, there was a, a point brought up in the show now a couple of times. I know you're not clergy. You're a layperson, a clinical social worker. Talk about the importance mm-hmm. of having non-clergy involved in this process, whether uh, a process to uh, protect people from being victimized or to uh, try to regain the trust of a church community when something like this happens? Well, I think it's important that that everyone be educated, the lady, the parents, the children, everyone has a role to play in preventing abuse. Um, The survivors play a a critical part of it, too. So we we have to work together. There's no way to do this for any one community, any one group of people. It has to be something that's universal. And in order to truly bring awareness, it has to be something that people are willing to talk about openly and honestly and come together as a community, and I think that's a big part of what we're trying to accomplish is to reach out to others. And our Committee for Healing will sit down and meet with anyone who's been a survivor of sexual abuse by a member of the clergy. They themselves have been a survivor of abuse by a priest from the Diocese of Bridgeport and feel very strongly that others you know, who come forward, we want to hear from them. We want to hear how we can help to reach others, but also to do our very best to protect the children. And so it, it is an effort to educate, but it is also an, ed, an effort to make sure that reports get made to civil authorities. I think that's something that didn't often happen in the past. And Our Lady, whether it's in the police department or the Department of Children and Families, play a very critical role in helping us to keep kids safe. Aaron Neal, again, is founding director of Safe Environments for the Diocese of Bridgeport. Aaron, uh, before we let you go, I have to ask, again, I had mentioned this to Gail earlier in the show, when these stories uh, come to light, when more accounts of abuse uh, uh, become known, I'm just curious, uh, you know, are you, do, does the Bridgeport Diocese get calls, and how would you handle that today? We do, and as a matter of fact, since the reports have come out, it has been difficult for so many people who have you know, really moved forward in their healing and their recovery. Sometimes news like this can set people back, and it really becomes so challenging to do you know, everything that they want to do to bring that healing. And even for those who have sufficiently moved forward, it really takes time to really think about this, pray about it, reflect on it, and make sure that they feel they trust everything that we're doing. And that's why we're really checking in and making sure that everyone knows um, what we're doing to protect kids, but also to reach out. And, you know, our, our Mass for Hope and Healing that is coming is the third one of its kind, and we meet directly with the bishop to help inform him about how we can get the most people to know about this. I mean, I think that is one of the challenges, is that the prevention pieces are not often talked about, um, and they're probably one of the most important for our future generations in the Church. And so, you know, we hope Every parent will take some time to talk to their kids, talk about the warning signs of child abuse, and talk about how important it is to report. 
it's important that we have that ability to have them heard. I think what we hear from survivors is that they didn't have a place to go, they didn't have someone to turn to or a trusted, safe person. And so we want to have many safe people in their lives that they can go to. I want to thank Aaron Neal again, Director of Safe Environments for the Bridgeport Diocese. Aaron, thanks for calling in. Thank you. Um, time is short. I do want to thank Dr. Paul Lakeland again, Professor of Catholic Studies and Director of the Center for Catholic Studies at Fairfield University, uh, with the, some perspective on what needs to change within the Roman Catholic Church. Paul, thank you. Thank you so much. And Gail Howard, we're going to share information again for people if they need to reach you, co-leader of the Connecticut Chapter of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. You can check out our social media at Where We Live for that information, also our, our web post. Gail, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to broaden our discussion to other institutions in our society where sexual abuse happened and was covered up. Why does this happen? A psychologist will join us to talk more about institutional betrayal. And you can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been focusing on the sex abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, but in no way is this the only institution guilty of covering up abhorrent acts. Look no further than another Pennsylvania institution, Penn State football, where a legendary coach and university leadership there turned a blind eye to sexual abuse. There's been pressure on how the U.S. military responds to sexual abuse and harassment. The Me Too movement has cast a spotlight on sexual harassment and abuse, from Hollywood to news organizations to USA Gymnastics. Even boarding schools have been outed. Last Friday, an independent investigation of the Hotchkiss School in Lakeville, Connecticut, acknowledged formal faculty there carried out sexual abuse of students from 1969 to 1992. What do all these accounts have in common? Joining us now is Jennifer Freyd, professor of psychology at University of Oregon and fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, you, We understand you've coined a term for what we're talking about, and that's called institutional betrayal. Can you talk about that? Institutional betrayal is a broad concept. It's whenever an institution you're dependent on in some way harms you. And it includes when an institution you expect to protect you from certain kinds of events fails to protect you or even punishes you when you have that experience, such as a sexual violation, and try to have any um, reporting occur. And we know from research we've done in my laboratory that institutional betrayal adds harm to people. So it's not just that institutions are failing to prevent abuse, but when they respond poorly, they are, um, that's associated with increased physical and mental suffering of the survivors. You also talk about betrayal blindness. And so when someone has been victimized, uh, this feeling that they can't confront what's happened to them. That's correct. It's a pretty pervasive human response, and it comes from the need to protect necessary relationships. So if you think about like a child with a powerful person they're dependent on in some way, their parent or it could be um, a priest, that if they fully are aware of the mistreatment and take some action, they may risk that whole relationship and be in a much worse situation. So it's a basic survival need to protect necessary relationships, including with institutions. So 
this um, betrayal blindness is protective for people, but of course it has the side effect that that means it's harder to stop the abuse from continuing. And it certainly impacts uh, the opinion uh, that we have of institutions uh, that we're raised in or that uh, we've come to admire. I want to take a listener call. Uh, Matt is calling from West Hartford. Matt, go ahead. Um, I grew up in a Catholic church for um, a while. I went to Catholic school, so I learned about um, uh, theology. And, you know, it strikes me that a lot of people are, I don't know, they're questioning their faith and um, worrying about um, priests and such. And it's understandable because it's, uh, you know, the Catholic faith teaches you to believe in, uh, you know, um, that, that the homily gives priests, um, you know, this deep connection with God, uh, maybe even so much as, like, they are um, becoming one with God or God is speaking through them. And, you know, how could you not trust someone who doesn't just have a direct line to God, but, you know, maybe is God for a brief moment every week? Um, it's just, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. Well, Matt, thank you uh, for your call. Uh, I want to uh, bring back into the conversation Jennifer Freyd again, uh, who uh, is an expert on uh, child abuse, but also this idea of betrayal and why institutions uh, maybe not respond and the impact uh, to that institution. Uh, Matt uh, shared with our call screener, or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, he did, that uh, Jennifer, uh, Matt shared with our call screener that he grew up in the Catholic faith, he no longer is part of the church, and, and and that's also part of it, right? This detachment of something that at one time uh, might have provided comfort. That's correct. It, often when people are able to fully confront what happened to them, it um, goes hand in hand with having some separation from the powerful other, whether it's an, a, an individual or an institution. And that can be totally understood because with that separation, they then are free to be more aware of what really happened, but also in being aware, they will naturally want to separate from an abusive, abusive other. So it's like the breakdown of betrayal blindness, and it can be very painful, but it can be very liberating. Uh, you uh, also talk about institutional courage, where institutions can address and prevent culture of abuse. Are we starting to see that? I, I gave a long list of, of accounts uh, of where uh, we have seen uh, trust be eroded. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the paths forward. Yeah. So although institutional betrayal and certainly sexual violence are difficult problems, institutions can take some very concrete steps to begin to address the problem. And we do see some institutions starting to do this. There's a huge range, you know. We see institutions responding horribly and defensively and um, a reaction I call DARVO, which is deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender, which is very damaging to people. But we do see some institutions being accountable and really looking inward and starting to make some reforms. So one of the things institutions can do um, is exactly what's happening right now in this in this radio show and in institutions all over the country, which is to address the issues, talk about them openly, begin to um, stop hiding things. That's, that's huge. But it's not enough. It's also necessary to take some other steps. One that makes a big difference is well-done, scientifically sound, anonymous surveys where the individuals in the institution can report on what's really going on. 
And when something is stigmatized as sexual violence is in question, you really need to do an anonymous survey. Um, Jennifer, I mentioned to our listeners, you're a psychologist. Uh, we started uh, the show and spent a bulk talking about systemic abuse within the Roman Catholic Church. From a psychologist standpoint, when you look at the response of the church, uh, uh, what's lacking? Well, I mean, the, the uh, anonymous surveys I just mentioned, I don't think that, that uh, the church has supported such data collection. I think it would be radicalizing if they did. There's been a really mixed amount of accountability. Um, There's been a lot of continued denial and attempt to make it a bad apples problem as opposed to understanding the systemic nature. This is addressable. One of the things um, that the church and all these institutions can do is actually invest in some good education. So we know a lot from decades of research in trauma psychology and sexual violence work. We know a lot about how people respond. We know why it takes people a long time. We know a lot about a good good, um, response to a disclosure. Um, We have concepts. All of that, educating people, can really make a difference in how institutions and people go forward. Jennifer Freight, again, is professor of psychology at University of Oregon, also fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Jennifer, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Um, Some of the resources we mentioned during the show, again, we'll have them on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can also look at our our social media links at where we live. And uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We thank you for calling in, being part of today's conversation, and thanks for listening.